0: Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Emily. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. And today, we're kind of doing a companion episode to our New Year's resolution episode, I feel like. If you listen to that episode, which you definitely should, you probably heard me talking about how I don't really do New Year's resolutions. I sort of... Don't ever really make them. And that's more or less true. But then (laughs) after talking it through with Emily, I realized I actually do have a New Year's resolution of sorts um, that I didn't share on the episode. And I figured, why not? No time like the present. No time like the present. And I think it's something that will be good to share in the sense of sort of radical honesty because who knows how many listeners out there are sort of privately doing the same thing. And that is... In 2018, I am trying to be more mindful about my alcohol consumption. Yeah, And if the data is to be believed, I am not alone. Um, to be clear, I'm not someone who I think has like a drinking problem or is a problem drinker, has never sort of come up in my life in those ways. But honestly, this is going to sound a bit dumb. What got me really thinking about it was this interview that Chrissy Teigen did in Cosmo Magazine she talks about how she just sort of realized that she was drinking a lot and not really thinking about it. She says, I got used to being in hair and makeup and having a glass of wine. And then that glass of wine would carry me over to the next one before the award show. Then that glass of wine would carry over into me having one before the award show and then a bunch during the award show. And then I felt bad making an ass of myself to people that I really respected. And that feeling, there's nothing like that. Mm. You feel horrible. It's not a good look for me, not a good look for John, not a good look for anyone. And I thought... Same. Yeah. I totally relate. Do you relate to that?
1: Definitely. Definitely. I think there are different times in our lives, and we should acknowledge a trigger warning, too, up front here for anyone who is struggling with or has struggled with addiction, alcoholism, whose life has been touched by alcoholism uh, in your family or loved ones or friends. You know that this is a ubiquitous part of our culture that's in some ways made more difficult to talk about with such courageous honesty. So thank you for making this a priority, Bridget. You're welcome. Um, Because it is so widely accepted and beyond widely accepted, you know, ubiquitous in terms of its accessibility. And you're almost deemed weird when you're not drinking. And there are many social instances in which drinking is an expected part of the whole celebratory environment.
0: Absolutely. Um That has been my experience 100%. In thinking about Chrissy's story, something that really jumped out at me is how if you're someone who works a stressful job or you're, you know, just living your life, maybe you do have a couple of glasses of wine here and there. And it's easy to sort of not see the ways that they can add up or just sort of have it be a habitual thing that you do without even really thinking about. And so.
1: Yeah. Or or it's like a part of your self-care regimen. Exactly. Because you can, it can almost be twisted in this very overwhelming, stressful, BS world that we've been faced with for this presidency, especially. Exactly. So that has been my experience to a T. Uh, many of y'all know that a
0: while back while co hosting this podcast, I was also working uh, on the digital team at Planned Parenthood. And let me tell you, not only is that work very fulfilling and very, you know, gives you warm fuzzies, it's also very taxing, very exhausting, very frustrating, very overwhelming. You know there are lots of times where you scream at your desk. I've pounded on my desk at that job. I've screamed out in anger. And the first thing when I would get home in the evening that I would want to do is have a glass of wine. I would open my door and be like, "Trump messed <laughs> with us
1: all day. I need a glass of wine." And generally that would be my routine. You know, I mean, unless you're running to studio with me to then try to compartmentalize the news cycle of the day, which is no easy feat, when you're doing an episode on, I don't know, Me Too, you know, it's a really psychologically taxing uh, double duty that you were playing for a long time there. I can relate, quite frankly. And, you know, we like to pour our all into all these episodes, but also we are forced to compartmentalize and put on pause whatever's happening in your day that day to really focus in on a singular topic at a time or at, you know, three at a time in studio sessions. Totally. That's totally, totally it. Um,
0: So in my day, you know, come home, first glass of wine, then I maybe make dinner or work on the podcast, and while doing that, have another glass of wine, then maybe a glass of wine with dinner. And, you know, listen, that maybe doesn't sound like the behavior of a raging party animal, you know, Working on a feminist podcast over a bottle of wine. Yeah. But if you do, if you do the math, that adds up to three glasses of wine yeah. over the course of one evening. Keep in mind the CDC says that for a woman, four drinks is technically binge drinking. And right. so before you even know it, you're a hair below a night of binge, binge drinking. drinking
1: as your like average weeknight. And for all of y'all who heard us on the delightful women and whiskey episode, no, I'm a lightweight. Like, four drinks is enough to basically black me out at this point. Uh, and on occasion, on a big night out, like, <clears throat> I don't know, New Year's Eve, perhaps, I am reminded of what a lightweight I've become. And I swear, it's not from a lack of practice. It's just that I can't hold a drink anymore. And that sneaks up on you when you're in an environment where three or four drinks is you know, run in the mill over the course of a six-hour party or a six-hour, you know, evening.
0: I think you're exactly right. I think that we—it's easy to sort of not see certain behaviors as problem behaviors, even if, you know, medical professionals say, well, technically, that was kind of binge drinking. It's easy right. to sort of have it not feel that way, particularly when it's so accepted. And I think, for me— Here in D.C., as I'm sure you can attest to, I work in politics. People in politics like to drink. D.C. is a drinking city, and it's really difficult to get away from that at times. It almost feels impossible to get away from that.
1: Exactly. In fact, a new report just named D.C. as the number two state, or in this case district, in our country for the percentage of adults who consume alcohol and number one for the percentage of heavy drinkers, Wow. according to Detox.net. And to be clear, I think part of the intimate connection between alcohol and politics is that alcohol is the social lubricant of power, right? I've talked candidly in my work at Boston Up, and especially on a podcast interview I recently did with a friend of ours from The Work at Festival, WNYC's Women's Podcasting Festival, who I met there. Her name is Therese Barbato. She has an awesome podcast called That's What She Said. And I recently did an interview that went into detail about the really toxic relationship that I found myself in at the very start of my career. Uh, I was the state director working in politics in Rhode Island at the time. And at the time, I was living with in love with and cared deeply for a brilliant, hardworking social justice advocate, elected official, high-functioning alcoholic. And there is just nothing that will screw you up more than loving an addict and only realizing years later that a lot of what you thought was true was not true. And it also really messed my relationship up with booze and made me inherently uncomfortable with heavy drinkers and being around heavy drinkers. And it caused me to sort of fall into these habits of codependency, of counting other people's drinks and sort of monitoring what was the situation. And I left that relationship with some problematic drinking habits of my own. When I drank, I tended to get blackout drunk. I mean, and that was for a while. I was in therapy myself and I, and was fortunate enough to get a lot of support and understand what was going on um, in my own relationship to alcohol and my relationship to my ex at the time, but it's pernicious because it is so powerful in the world of politics. And it's, I mean, it's not only politics, right? Everyone's careers can benefit from networking at happy hour. It just so happens that this city has happy hour every day and boozy brunches, bottomless brunches on Sundays. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. Um, Something that stood out to me in the story that you were just sharing was this idea of sort of being high functioning. So many people I know, particularly people who are brilliant political minds or brilliant writers, uh, because journalism and media is also a big drinking industry. So many of them probably could stand to look at their substance, the way that substances show up in their lives, but because they have fabulous careers, because they have, because they're ass kickers, because they're so amazing, because they're so smart, we sort of don't, we assume they have it all together, and I think that's exactly what my my sort of semi-New Year's... I, I hate using the word resolution.
1: I don't... Just I to come it. with it, no. I need to come up with like a... a <laughs> I like it. If, uh, you know, you, can, you don't have to be cool about this, Bridget. I know, I know. This is my my a, reps on the line nerd. here. Be my a reps nerd. Like line. <laughs> yeah,
0: so, you know, I think why I'm doing this is because it seems like if you're someone who wants to ask questions about how alcohol shows up in your life you're an addict you're it's a problem and there's a stigma around it yeah. and i think why is that right like why why should i feel weird about coming on this podcast and saying i'm intentionally paying attention to the way that alcohol has play, has shown up in my life not because i'm getting blackout drunk every night but because i want to pay attention to it and it's something that i feel like we we don't pay attention to
1: yeah and- you're right i think there's so much stigma which is very rude if you come to realize how many alcoholics are walking amongst us. Right. Like, it's, it's kind of rare that people's lives aren't touched by alcoholism or addiction in some form or another. I mean, when you look at the numbers in the United States alone, 17.6 million people or one in every 12 adults suffer from alcohol abuse or dependence along with several million more who engage in risky binge drinking patterns that could lead to alcohol problems. Now, alcohol problems is a pretty wide net. And anytime you find yourself feeling like, I would like to reevaluate, as Chrissy Teigen was, what the impact alcohol and my consumption of alcohol has on my life and how I'm showing up and how I want to show up in the world, that's perfectly valid for that to show up in that... Uh, that bucket of sort of alcohol problems. And it doesn't mean you've got to ship yourself off to rehab either. There's this very hard line around the stigma that we bring to alcoholism that's very unhelpful. Well, that's why I
0: found Chrissy Teigen's explanation so powerful, because she explicitly says, listen, it wasn't like external forces came and said, you've got a problem or, you know, this happened and I'm so embarrassed. She just took a step back and wanted to reevaluate and sort of Think through how it showed up and for her and what it caused her, right? And I remember having a day, and again, my, my stories with alcohol are, as I said, not like I was at a raging party well, and you I know. I think you did fall out of a window. Well, that was college. That's what, <laughs> <Okay>. I, what <laughs> we're happened all, in college was we're like all yeah, alcoholics yeah, I, in college. I can tell you some college stories where you'd be like, well, oh, wow, that's, but you know, I was figuring <laughs> Same it out. Girl.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Same. Yeah. To be clear. In <laughs> fact, I think part of the reason, uh, my alcoholic ex-boyfriend was so, normal seeming to me is because I was in college when we first started dating. Exactly. That's... It's like if you're an alcoholic and you want to pass as like someone without a drinking problem, date a college student. Definitely. It's like the best strategy. That's so real. <laughs> For me, I remember one day where I
0: was excited to, I think, do something. It was something out of the house. It was something small or minor. And I went out drinking the night before and I didn't get blackout drunk and I wasn't like raging but the next day I was hungover and whatever the thing was I was looking forward to, I couldn't go because I was on the couch nursing a hangover. And, you know, it was, it was something small in my life, but I thought, gee, it's like I was looking forward to this thing all week and now I can't go because I went out drinking the night before. And I just thought I, it wasn't worth it. Like, yeah. it was, I, if I could do that day over, yeah. I would have done it differently. And I also think for me, the way that alcohol has showed up in my life is that You know, not only working in politics, such a, such a boozy industry, but I've worked in the service industry and the restaurant industry and a large, you know, portion of my friends currently work in bars and in restaurants. And that is, not only is that a boozy industry, in fact, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health, the only industries with more alcohol abuse in the service industry are the construction industry and the mining industry. So it's a, it's a hard drinking industry. And, you know, when you're going to visit your friends who tend bar, Oh, and yes. that's hanging out with your friends. You tend to drink more. You got more. The Yeah.
1: Also, you got the hookup with the best drinks. And like, I've totally benefited from having friends in the service industry. It's great. Have you ever been a part of the lock-in culture? No. When I was a barmaid, what the English call bartenders, uh, or women bartenders, in London during my study abroad experience at the University College London. Shout out to UCL. I got a job at a wonderful little pub called The Rocket, right by King's Cross Station. And for an entire semester, after a Friday or Saturday night of tending bar all evening, two o'clock would roll around. We would kick everybody out, clean up the bar, lock the doors, and then the party would begin Mm. amongst all the staff. So that lock in culture which is still very big, not just in England, I'm sure, but here in the United States as well, encourages a lot of my friends in the service industry to party until the sun comes up, sleep it off all day long, and then go back to work as the evening falls. And that is, A, I gained 20 pounds in beer weight straight up. B, I didn't make my best choices. I didn't make the best use of my time in Europe. Although some would say that the study abroad experience is more... And just what you learned in the classroom, that was certainly true for me. I don't know. I just feel like there is a culture of being a happy-go-lucky party person that comes with an excessive, scientifically excessive, amount of drinking. And I feel like you've said it multiple times. You pride yourself on being the party girl. You're the life of every party I've ever been to. You enjoy drinking. So it's hard to examine a hobby that like you say, you also can feel some remorse over when you look back at the grand scheme of things. Like, that's an okay dichotomy to embrace. Yeah, I,
0: I'm, my whole life I've been known as the sort of, the fun one, quote-unquote. <laughs> I remember in college when, you know how in college, dudes are, like, talking about the girls, and, and they're like, oh, so-and-so's the pretty one, and so-and-so's the hot one. So my friends are always, oh, she's the hot one, and then she's the cool one, and it was always Bridget... She's a lot of fun. That was me. I was the fun girl. And so I think that because of that, drinking me kind of became part of my identity. Like like the idea that I would examine something that seems so closely linked
1: to how people think of me when they think of how I show up in the world was difficult. I've seen this before with you as we've gone out drinking after many a podcast session. I wonder if you feel this need to entertain Because I almost see you kind of putting on a performance. And y'all, if we ever get our act together and have an actual meetup in D.C., which I know we've been talking about and dying to have, and schedules have been challenging, but we will figure that out. You will see Bridget Todd, the entertainer. Because when you are out for a night, you are on. And it's never about you chilling. It's about making sure like the environment is good for other people. I almost feel like you... You perform for other people in that way.
0: Yeah. I'll put it this way. I think I've always been someone who my sort of everyday superpower is to get others to feel comfortable and open up. And so I, if we're out and I can tell someone feels awkward, I'm very good at getting someone to co- like loosen up, relax, yes. tell a funny story, laugh. Whatever, have Even a Even me. <laughs> I mean, my God, Bridget. I mean, it's a talent, but it's also like a curse, right? Because if yeah. you're always thinking, you know, if your number one priority is, I want everyone to feel good, be happy, be relaxed, be laughing, be having a good time, that if that becomes part of how you see yourself, it can be a little problematic.
1: Yeah, not to mention you're also the pretty one and the cool one. Aww. So... Literally
0: every dude in my college would disagree. You're all wrong,
1: obviously. Uh Bridget Todd's <laughs> modesty strikes again, and I'm here to debunk the myth. No, well, I think I think you're totally right, and I think that, you know, before we dive too deep into a therapy session here in the studio <gasps> Welcome today... Welcome to Bridget's most innermost thoughts. Although no, this is... It's this tough. I mean, this was... I... Really
0: struggled with whether to bring this to the pod. I, this is an episode that I hope that no one I know listens to because it's not something I, I'm really comfortable talking about with friends unless that we're very, very close. It's not something that I want people to be examining for, on my behalf. Like if someone sees me yeah. with a picture of a drink on Instagram, I don't want them to be like, I thought you weren't drinking this month or whatever, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is something that I, it's I... Like my vegans. <laughs> right, right. And so this is something, it's, you can probably tell, difficult for me to talk about because it's so personal. But I think if there are people, and the research suggests that there are, who are also reevaluating, thinking through how alcohol
1: shows up in their lives, why can't we all do it together? I completely agree. And this is something that I've done myself in the years following that relationship. Because, you know, there's a, a, a many different shades of what might be deemed alcoholism. And interestingly, most people who drink too much according to Dr. Robert Brewer uh, at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, are not alcohol-dependent or alcoholics. It's this idea that they're excessive drinkers, which can cover several different groups. Binge drinkers, heavy drinkers, meaning men who have more than 15 drinks in a week, or women who have more than eight drinks in a week, Everybody's counting on their fingers right now, which is good. Um, Women who drink during pregnancy, anyone under the age of 21 who drinks. And
0: so if you're someone like me who likes to drink, you might be thinking, oh, great news. According to this research, I am not, in fact, a problem drinker or I am not, in fact, someone who is an alcoholic. I can just keep heavy drinking with reassurance that I don't have a problem. But here's why that's wrong. The knowledge that only 10% of heavy drinkers are actual alcoholics may sound reassuring, but that doesn't mean that the other 90% don't also have problems with drinking. Joseph Nowinski, PhD and co-author of the book Almost Alcoholic, which I feel like is a really perfect title, points this out in his book. He describes how drinking negatively affects up to one third of drinkers who aren't actually classified as having an alcohol use disorder. He writes, there are many people in the almost alcoholic zone who are having alcohol related problems with their health, their relationships and social lives and even their work, but who don't connect the dots between these problems and their drinking. These people dismiss the possibility of being alcoholics and they truly don't qualify under current definitions, but may need to take a step back and look how drinking is
1: affecting their lives. That speaks so strongly to me, because at one point in my life, shortly after I'd gotten out of that really toxic relationship, and I was starting to recognize that, wow, the amount of alcohol that I was consuming when I was going out for a night of partying was putting me in dangerous situations. And I I, I feel like we've all had those nights. And, you know, I think we're lucky if we can look back at those nights and say, wow, that was almost something really dangerous. And one of them for me is the fact that when I did get very drunk out partying with a group of people, my go-to would be to, like, run away. At some point in the night... Oh, you were the fleer. I fled the scene. When my body was, like, rebelling, when I was realizing I'm so drunk, my instinct was to flight, basically. And there were many times when I realized, like, I'm alone... I'm heading back to my apartment. My poor parents. I hope they don't listen to this. But, like, it was it was dangerous. There were dangerous situations. And I was fortunately, you know, not rescued, I would say, but helped by kind people to make sure I got home safe and sound. And I'm talking strangers and police officers. Wow. So I just remember waking up the next day after an altercation like that and thinking about my consumption as being something, this isn't something I've survived that was part of a bad relationship. This is something I need to deal with and I need to take responsibility for now. And that's when I started going dry in January, which I'd been doing for a few years. Um, that's when I started recognizing that it's okay for me to own being a lightweight as opposed to trying to keep up with the boys or keep up with women who can drink me under the table quite frankly and I just think it's so worth evaluating your own danger or your your own ability to put yourself in situations even if it's just like Chrissy Teigen who might embarrass herself or in front of people she respects or God forbid something much much scarier than that
0: exactly and I want to talk through how this idea of a dry January is showing up right now in January after this quick break And we're back just sharing some of our war stories from (laughs) Survival (laughs) survival survival stories from lives as women, figuring out the way that we use alcohol. Um, and that's why I'm so interested in this idea of a dry January. So to be clear, I'm not committing to a dry January necessarily. I'm committing to a Drinking last January. Are you thinking
1: about it though? I'm do you
0: thinking, think you could do
1: like a week? Just do. A week. Yeah, I'm doing. I'm. I've.
0: I haven't had a drink since New Year's Eve.
1: Oh, that's good. Uh, New Year's Eve was uh-huh. my last drink. Same. Yeah. I'm down if you're down. Yeah. I, I did. Th- I didn't do it last year or the year before, but I did it for two years prior and oh, wow. it was great. Actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm down with doing it. There are a couple th- there are a couple like things I
0: have on the schedule that I'm like, well, I'm definitely going to drink that. I'm okay. definitely going to drink then. So I just don't want to set myself up for a goal that I know I'm not going to meet. It's
1: not about perfection. That's it's about flexibility. That is so real. <laughs> that is
0: so real. Um, And so dry January, this was something I had actually never really even heard of. Um, It really took off in the U.K., but the first time in the research that I found that it showed up was in 1942. Sober January was a campaign pushed in Finland as part of the country's war effort against Russia. But in modern days, according to the Sun newspaper, the official campaign started in the U.K. around 2011 by a nonprofit called Alcohol Concern. And so basically, the idea behind Dry January came when an Alcohol Concern employee decided to not drink during the month because he was running a half marathon in February. And this really took off after that. In 2012, Alcohol Concern decided to launch their first Dry January campaign, which would start in 2013. Um, The first ever campaign saw just under 4,500 people take part. And by January of 2014, it was up to 17,000 people.
1: In in 2007, it was up to 5 million who were on board of the campaign. And in a country like England, where once again, I have slang beer in the country of England, they pride themselves on their beer consumption just as much as their cheese consumption. You know what I mean? I feel like that's a really astounding number. And good on alcohol concern for making this such a huge... Campaign And it absolutely trickled over to the U.S. I've heard people here call it dry hmm. And to me, it feels like the perfect time of year to just wring your liver out for one month after New Year's because the Lord knows I need it. And I think I drank less on New Year's this year than ever in my adult life. And I still was like, January 1, why am I so hungover? This is not the tone I wanted to set for my New Year. It's the worst way to spend...
0: I mean, it's the worst. Yeah, it's like I feel like it's one of the worst ways to ring in a, a, what is supposed to be a fresh start. Yeah, with a headache, watching a Buffy the Vampire Slayer marathon
1: because <laughs> you can't leave your couch. And also, we're getting older, and hangovers are gnarly, y'all. Like hangovers in your thirties are no joke. That's a day killer. And I remember being twenty-four and being hungover, and I look back on that and laugh. Like you weren't hungover. You didn't know what a hangover was.
0: What's funny is that I actually never got hangovers in my twenties. I didn't get, I had never even experienced one until my (laughs) thirties. I thought they were made up to scare young people out of drinking. (laughs) Like, oh, you're gonna have a hangover, don't drink. I thought, oh, there's no such thing as a hangover. I remember the first time I experienced a really bad hangover in my thirties. I went to the urgent. I went to urgent care. I was like, no. "Am I dying?" They were like, "No, you just you drank. A hangover. A, you just drank a lot last night." I'd never ex- I had thought- never. And you're like,
1: "Can I get an IV drip, please? Because <laughs> yeah. that would cheer me right up."
0: <laughs> I know what you might be thinking: Are dry Januarys actually effective? Or according to the research, they actually might be. A study from University of Sussex says they can actually be effective in making you more mindful about your drinking overall. According to this research, the findings suggest that participation in abstinence challenges such as dry January may be associated with changes toward healthier drinking and greater DRSE, which is basically how likely you are to turn down a drink, um, and is unlikely to result in undesirable, quote, rebound effects. Very few people reported increased alcohol consumption following a period of voluntary abstinence. And to go on, the research that I found most compelling from that study was that even if you don't actually complete a full dry January, you actually are still more likely to drink less throughout the next six months. Yeah. So if I don't actually make it a full month, this research suggests that even if I have a drink here or there, you don't have to be perfect and have a perfectly dry January to still get re- results that last potentially six months.
1: I, I totally understand that because it's about mindful awareness and that DRSE thing, which is so critical. It's the drink refusal self-efficacy, that ability to be at a party and have everyone turn to you and say, do you want wine, liquor or beer? And for you to say, water for me, please, and not die of humiliation and peer pressure. Because for whatever reason, I mean, people look at you sideways when you refuse an alcoholic beverage at a house party. Like, I don't know what to give you. And who is it that um has this great stand-up bit about it? Um, John Mulaney. Oh, where yeah, where
0: it's like, if you were to say, oh, I don't eat mayonnaise, yeah. people wouldn't be like, no mayonnaise? Did you have a bad experience with mayonnaise? Yeah,
1: I mean, John Mulaney is a hilarious Irish-American stand-up comic who is in recovery. He's an alcoholic. And... He jokes about, A, how much blacking out used to cause him trouble and why he does not drink anymore. But, B, when he would go to friends' parties, they would look at him like, I literally don't know what to give you. Do you want some pickles from the back of my fridge? Or I think I have, like, a leftover tortilla. I don't know what to give you. That is how foreign abstinence from alcohol can be for our culture. And that ability to refuse a drink, that ability to say, no, thank you, takes muscle. Like it actually is a a, a habit that you have to flex over time and practice over time because it is not easy. And I used to just get a soda water with lime at the bar when I was really stepping back from my alcohol consumption and trying to ease up on the booze altogether because I was so freaked out. Um, Just so it would look like I was drinking. Which I would say is perfectly acceptable, but still skirting around the self-efficacy part, right? You're not really unabashedly refusing a drink. You're sneaking by. Right. I mean, I've done the
0: the soda water with lime trick, too. And it's effective. But the real question is, why should we have to trick people into thinking that we're having a drink if we don't want to drink? Like, why is it not okay in our culture to just not drink at times and have it be your own business of why that is and not have it be a thing? I guess I would like to see some culture shift around... How alcohol shows up really for all of us, even for people who are like are lightweight who barely drink. I just think that we don't live in a culture that is really open to folks being mindful about how they drink in an explicit way, without it being something that's incredibly stigmatized.
1: Yes, exactly. Like, oh, do we need to stage an intervention? And then you have to think about the folks you might be ribbing at the party for turning down a drink or making fun of for being a lightweight might actually be struggling with, like, more hardcore alcoholism than you know. And when we have a culture that's not tolerant of even analyzing alcohol consumption or speaking critically and mindfully about our own consumption, how must it feel to be in recovery and be around people who are basically throwing such shade to anyone who might refuse a drink? You know, it's just so intolerant and disrespectful, and alcohol is so omnipresent already that for folks in recovery, it can be really hard to stay in recovery as opposed to more hardcore drugs, which are harder to get your hands on uh, than you know every single holiday party, every single wedding, every single gathering of friends at the bar, every single networking opportunity. Like It's harder to avoid when it is this mainstream. And
0: even beyond that, Think about how many different activities we now, and I'm, I'm not throwing shade on this because I think it's awesome, <laughs> but how many activities have we included booze in that we don't even necessarily think of as drinking activities, like boozy
1: yoga? What? It's a, it's a thing. Or- I, okay, so Brad the Boo is the one who convinced me that all day drinking is insane. And I never had the guts to look at it that way because it's so, you know, omnipresent in brunch and boozy softball leagues and all that other stuff. And then I realized like, I cannot have a day and have drinks during the day. Can't do it. Can't have a drink in the park on a Saturday. That will not work for my body. And once Brad acknowledged that it was crazy and he doesn't understand anyone who does it. I was like, yes, this is the mentality I can get on board with because all that daytime sh- that we've made alcoholic all of a sudden is nuts. That's not what alcohol is meant for, in my opinion. It doesn't pair well with your surfboard yoga. I just do not get it. I can't do it. When I day drink, I'm, I'm out for the night. I'm like sleeping at 5 p.m.
0: Yeah, I don't agree. <laughs> I mean, I do think, the, I think culturally it's gotten a little out of hand, but I do, I do love a good, a good boozy brunch. I can't, do I can't you? lie. I do.
1: I have boozy brunches that every Bossed Up boot camp, but people do seem to love it. And every single Bossed Up boot camp, I go home from that brunch without a mimosa. I'm like the only one who doesn't have a mimosa at brunch because I need to get through the rest of my day. Yeah. Oh, I guess I guess my thinking is if brunch is on a Sunday or a
0: Saturday and you don't have a big day anyway, I don't know. I guess <laughs> this sounds like justifying something that you were like, no, it's really not a good idea.
1: But I, that- mean, I mean, I think... With all self-efficacy in mind, you have to know yourself and your own body and your goals for Sunday or Saturday or whatever day it is. And I have found I enjoy my life more when I do not, you, I like unequivocally don't drink during the day. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen you drink, drink and other than our whiskey
1: episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only I, time that I've that ever seen you. That did ruin my day, but it was a great <laughs> episode. It was worth it. It was worth
0: it. It was worth it. Yeah, I don't want to throw shade on my favorite activities, which are boozy brunch. But I just think it's okay to enjoy a boozy brunch every now and then, while also being critical of a culture where alcohol is creeping more and more and more into our activities that we ne- that like perhaps were never boozy to begin with.
1: Yeah, I think it's worth a critical eye, and I I also hear. That there's some critiques of this concept of pure abstinence as well, which when you look at it from a sex ed perspective, those critiques carry over pretty, pretty interestingly. Because in this piece for Vogue, Laura Nielsen writes about, uh, the fact that, you know, dry January is basically an extreme diet. And like all extreme diets, it can set people up to yo-yo afterwards. They might justify binge drinking prior to dry January or immediately afterwards. It might set you up for a sort of springboard effect instead of finding a sense of balance for whatever's right for you with that sense of flexibility and not striving for perfection, which can sometimes set you up for failure.
0: Yeah, I think it's important to note that the research that we cited before says that Most folks don't find themselves binge drinking after a dry period, but I do think that it's kind of one of those things where maybe it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. I can imagine someone saying, oh, I'm going to give up booze for all of January, so I'm going to really go hard December 31st and then really go hard on February 1st and have it not be such a helpful thing in their life.
1: I think you're absolutely right. And what's interesting is that this is especially relevant for women, in this moment we find ourselves in. We're going to explore that further after this quick break and a word from our sponsors. And we're back, and we are talking through our relationship to booze, quite frankly, this concept of taking January to be more mindful about alcohol consumption. And what I found most interesting in the research is that This is especially relevant for women today. Americans across the board are drinking more now uh, than they have in the past, according to a 2017 study from JAMA Psychiatry. But these increases in alcohol consumption was especially higher in women. It kind of does remind me of the women in whiskey episode, because women are leading the whiskey renaissance, if you think about it. According to this 2017 study from JAMA Psychiatry, for men, high-risk drinking had increased 15%, and alcohol use disorder had increased close to 35%. For women, the high-risk drinking sort of population increased by 60%. 60%, and alcohol use disorder increased nearly 84%. So while alcoholism has traditionally in the past been a disease dominated by men that has overwhelmingly impacted more men in terms of sheer quantities, the rates of women who are now showcasing these kinds of symptoms and challenges with their consumption is increasing at a much faster pace which is something that health professionals and public health advocates are concerned about.
0: Well, one reason why the research suggests that women are drinking more is this idea that women are becoming more, quote, like men. And so they have more educational opportunities. Equality. Yeah, equality, equal opportunity binge drinkers. (laughs) Um, But yeah, these educational and professional opportunities have women more aligned with men and thus have resulted in women drinking, quote, like men more.
1: Huh. Unfortunately biologically, we are still not all like all men. And this is not, I don't want to draw hard lines on the gender spectrum here right now, but it's true that the the definitions from the CDC about what qualifies as an alcoholic differs across a gender binary, which I find very interesting. Exactly. From a physiological standpoint, that's like a very harsh line. Like, men equals this many drinks. Women Women equal that that many. many drinks. Yeah. Um, I
0: also found it really interesting that in addition to this idea that women are having more professional and educational opportunities that can lead to more problematic drinking, another one is good old-fashioned stress. Women be stressing. I don't know if you've noticed, but the patriarchy is a little stressful to deal with. And I think women, and according to the research, it's true, women are drinking more because of that. According to this piece in The Atlantic, women are basically drinking to deal with all of the stress that comes from trying to be a perfect wife, a perfect mother, a perfect employee. This is
1: Roll Overload Booze Edition. Yes. It's true. It
0: honestly is. Jan Bauer, author of Alcoholism and Women, believes that women are looking for what she calls, quote, oblivion drinking. (laughs) And this is the idea that... Your day-to-day just battling the world is so hard and you have to be so perfect that you're drinking just to blot out the feeling that you need to be perfect for a few hours.
1: You know who speaks to this a lot in her TED Talk is Brene Brown, whose TED Talk is one of the most widely viewed talks ever on shame and guilt. And she discusses this in the context of a banana nut muffin and a beer. And when you are having a tough day, when you're feeling stressed out, when you don't want to feel the feelings that you are feeling, it is easier and more socially acceptable to just have a beer and a banana nut muffin and numb out for a little while. That's totally normal in our society. But the unfortunate consequence is you can't numb selectively. When you numb out the pain or the shame or the guilt or the trauma that you're burying and you're trying to avoid dealing with, You also numb out joy. You numb out your capacity for connection. You numb out your capacity for vulnerability and love. And that, I mean, that was the kicker for me when I was listening to her TED Talk was just because it's a societal norm to come home after a long day and tune out an oblivion drink doesn't mean there aren't serious downsides that we're missing out on by doing so. I
0: think that's so right, Um, because think about it even in the most common sense terms. Let's say you have an old friend that you're excited to catch up with, and they come to town, you go out drinking, you might wake up and be like, I don't even remember the conversation we had. Yeah. In the moment, it could be fun, but looking back, you're like, we were drinking, and I numbed out the joy, the laughter, the stories, the catching up, because I was drinking.
1: That's why I'm trying to do more workout friend dates and like, non-alcoholic tea and coffee friend dates, which is a weird thing to do because traditionally I would say, let's grab drinks. And especially when I'm traveling to new cities, I'm on the road all the time. I don't want to be alone on the road all the time. And so I always try to meet up with friends and make time for fun in my year of fun uh, when I'm on the road. But now I have been much more deliberate about non-alcoholic planned fun because you know I got a Google Calendar, <laughs> like, bubble on my on my schedule for it. So, it is interesting to think about how you can get that connection without the expected default of the alcohol that comes with it so often.
0: I think that's so true. I mean, we have a lot to vent about. Donald Trump is president and women are under attack left and right all over the place. We have a lot to sit with, with a friend. To and about. You know, we have
1: a lot to be angry about.
0: And I saw this crystallized in this beautiful, hilarious viral essay that started on Medium by Christy Coulter called Giving Up Alcohol Opened My Eyes to the Infuriating Truth About Why Women Drink. The reason, according to Coulter, the infuriating and ever-present indignities that being a woman in society comes with is forcing us all to sort of mollify these feelings with our boozy brunches and wine nights. Oof, that stings, man. That feels true. So she describes the act of getting sober, and she writes... How did I not see this before, I asked myself. You were too hammered, I answered back. The summer I see, though, I see that booze is the oil in our motors, the thing that keeps us purring when we should be making other kinds of noise.
1: Right. She's basically saying we should be marching in the streets. We should be running for office. We should be taking what's, you know, rightfully ours, equal access to power structures. And instead, we're saying, you know, F- the patriarchy and pour me another. <laughs> And I, I kind of get it. I get it. it. It is this weird form of self-preservation through numbing. But what she's really doing in this piece is calling us out for the bullshit that that is, because that's not actually helping anybody.
0: Totally. She describes this kind of, if you remember this commercial um, for perfume, I can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan. It's about being a 24-hour modern woman who can do it all. I can bring home the bacon, Angelique. fry it up in a pan, Angelique. and never let. Angelique, the eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman. I can work till five o'clock, come home and read you any time. So the woman in the commercial sings this song, and she says, "I blame that for a lot, for spreading the notion that women should have to pick a career, keep house, their husband, when the only sane thing to do is pick two and outsource the third. For making it seem glamorous, for suggesting it was going to be fun, and the tagline she dragged around, the eight-hour perfume for the 24-hour woman. Just in case you thought we can get one hour off the clock." The longer I am sober, the less patience I have for being a 24-hour woman. The stranger who tells me to smile. The janitor who stares at my legs. The man on TV who wants to annex my uterus. Even the other TV men who say abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. What business is it of yours, whether it's rare or not, I think? And then I start to get angry at women, too, not for being born wrong or failing to dismantle a thousand years of patriarchy on my personal timetable, but for being so easily mollified by a bottle, for thinking that the right to get as trash as a man means anything but the right to be as useless. That is damn yeah that stings it's intense but i get it
1: were you called in by it. that i was a
0: little called in yeah i was a little called in it's it's easy to think you know with boozy brunches and cocktail hours and all of these material things that feel good yeah. that we as women have fought to have maybe they've fallen back on yeah like maybe as good as those things feel they don't really mean that much
1: Yes. And it really makes me look back on our women in whiskey episode with a different perspective because instead of celebrating the renaissance of whiskey being led by women, it, it's actually disarming us in some ways. And so finding that balance for you personally is so important. Finding the balance between drinking in a way that makes you feel delighted. If that is something that makes you feel delighted but not drinking as the default. Because when it becomes mindless, it's someone else handing you the drink. It's not you really pouring it for yourself. It's sort of society numbing you out instead of you deciding selectively when you're going to choose that for yourself. And I think that kind of mindful awareness is a good thing to focus on this month. So I'm I'm with you, Bridget. Let's give it a shot. And for our listeners who might be toying with this idea... How are there a couple of ways to dabble in dryuary?
0: So whether you're doing it to fully and so really tap into your rightful feminist rage, or you just want to save a few dollars by not spending them on beer, here or give you, your liver a break, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> whichever, whichever reason you're doing it for, or, or if you're not doing it or whatever, totally cool. But if you are cutting back this month or any time, here are a few tips. We mentioned earlier that drinking a soda water with a lime kind of makes it look like you're drinking a gin and tonic if you find it helpful to avoid questions. Um, something that I've been kind of dabbling in is fancy mocktails. Um, they are really, really high in sugar, but <laughs> they are. I kind of think, like, oh, like maybe if I drink a fancy, fizzy, fruity drink, I can, you know, it'll be easier to One not vice drink. One for another. Exactly. I'm all about selective <laughs> vices. Um, another is sort of remembering that there are other things that you can do when you're trying to avoid drinking other than hanging out in bars. You know, you can go to a museum, you can go to a park, you can go do a workout, like you said. There are plenty of ways to have fun with friends that don't include drinking. And most of all, don't worry if you slip up. I am the queen of trying things and then being like, I don't like this, I'm not going to do it. Remember that that research shows that even if you just cut back on your drinking for one month, you still get positive benefits for six months and you're less likely to binge drink for six months after that, even if you don't actually complete your dry January.
1: Yeah, I think it's really about flexing your mindfulness muscles and really developing the skills to refuse a drink, which in this world is bizarrely hard, and it shouldn't be. And this is especially important if today's episode is making you call into question your relationship with alcohol to a much greater extent than uh, just sort of over-drinking on occasion. If the description of alcoholism or alcohol abuse that we described earlier from the CDC sounds like you, and you are in fact someone who needs support, do not be afraid to talk to a professional. I can attest to the life-changing magic of therapy. I think we've discussed it on the show many times now. And I remember distinctly finally confessing to someone when I was in that relationship, who happened to be a trusted ally who loved both of us. She loved me and she loved my partner at the time. And that's what made me feel safe going to her. She was my primary care physician. And I said to her on my annual physical, when she had a very powerful question at the bottom of that forum saying, is there anything else you want to talk to me about today? And I wrote alcoholism. And I just broke down on the exam table when she asked me, what was this about? I remember saying to her, this is my loved one's problem. How do we get him the help he needs? And she looked at me and said, yeah, let's talk about that. But first, let's get you the help you need. And I remember thinking, I don't need help. I don't need therapy. It's not my problem. And that one moment, that insistence that she had in connecting me with a trusted therapist, who, by the way, helped me get sort of financial assistance to afford that life-changing support, changed my life. It caused me to start bossed up. I mean, everything rolled out for my life since that moment. And it all starts with being willing to have the very uncomfortable and vulnerable but powerful conversation with someone who is in a position to help. So seek out a medical professional, for God's sakes, even if it's not something you're sure is a problem that you have to deal with. In my case, I was basically a codependent in a relationship with an alcoholic And I didn't even know that word existed until I was in therapy. So it can be life-changing to really take take the time to give yourself that time of day and get the support you need. One of the easiest ways you can make that first step right now is by calling the Substance Abuse National Helpline at 1-800-662-4357 for free and confidential information and support. That's 1-800-662-4357 five, seven, and I hope you'll take that step today if this does feel like something that's more than a New Year's resolution for you.
0: Yeah, I don't want to conflate those two things. You know, if you want to abstain from alcohol for a month and you realize that this is like a month off isn't going to cut it for you, definitely reach out and talk to someone. And I think that as we do this, you know, I'm working on being a little more Radically honest about how alcohol is showing up in my life, and so if this is something that you are also doing, let's talk about it. We want to hear from you, so feel free to reach us on Instagram at stuff mom ever told you, on Twitter at mom stuff podcast, and send me an email at mom stuff at howstuffworks. dot com. <laughs>